You're very welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast. We're delighted and honoured today to have such a well-known coach across the UK and, and indeed across the world, uh, Chris Ramsey, who's Technical Director of Queen's Park Rangers Academy, has previously been first-team manager with QPR as well in the Premier League and the Championship, and I think was in, integral in making Tottenham Hotspur one of the best academies, if not the best academy in the world. So you're very welcome, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Uh, honoured to be on. Uh, also, we've got Head of Performance at QBR Academy, Ross Bennis, here as always. And Ross, obviously, Chris is our, our boss in QPR, so if you, if you ask the wrong question today, this is going to be the first time someone was ever sacked. <laughs> Live on here on a podcast. <laughs> on Zoom, <laughs> on Zoom yeah. No, it's, it's good to have the gaffer on. Like I say, we have to pick our questions wisely, but hopefully um, the listeners will enjoy this one. I'm looking forward to it. So, yeah, be good. Yeah, so we, we, had a, we had a brilliant response last week to Bernard Jackman coming on the show. And you can download all the podcasts, all the normal platforms, and, and over on the website, dailysportscience.com. Um, Chris, we might start in a slightly different place. So 2019, you were awarded an MBE by the Queen for services to football and diversity yeah. in sport. Yeah. Uh, t tell us a little bit about, uh, I suppose, first of all, why you were awarded this. And, and I'm sure it must mean a very proud day for you and your family. Yeah, it was a very proud day. I mean, to, to be honest with you, I've been, this is my 42nd year in the game. And um, I think I've contributed quite a bit. Um, not in the bright lights, but in the de in developing players, um, coaching at all levels, um, and working all the, all across it, especially coach education um, and some other things. Like, for argument's sake, uh, when I was at the FA, we introduced a, the fitness badge, which which means that most of you fitness coaches now have have, have got jobs basically. Um, down to the fact that that originated. Um, the call for fitness coaches in clubs. Um, and there's a few other things that, I, that I've, you know, been proud of to work on, especially, like I said, on developing players and contrib contributing to uh, the welfare of players and uh, and just basically helping players reach their dreams. So uh, I was pleased, really, that it was, um, it was given to me for services to football and diversity rather than just diversity, because I think yeah. that would have uh, probably... Just looked like, as like a, a token, a token uh, award, um, but it goes to um, you know it goes without saying that I've long beat uh, beat the drum for uh, diversity and not just just diversity in colour, uh, but in, in culture, in gender, in disabilities. Um, I've really, really tried my best to make sure there's been equality for all uh, throughout the time that um, that I've been involved in football. Yeah, and it was good to see at that time, around 2019 as well, and you, you were you came out in the media and in support of Prince William as well, who spoke out a bit. It was around that period where, remember, England had played Bulgaria in a, was it a qualifier, and there was um, racist chanting and everything like that, and Prince William came out strongly against it, and we, we kind of need people like that, don't we, to, to come out like that? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, at the end of the day... I, I've, uh, I said years ago about people with economic value um, using their platform to uh, 
to say things. And, and recently, um, you know, obviously the Prince came out and said, said um, his piece, which I thought was brilliant, because at least we're looking at a high level, a person at the highest level you can go, actually acknowledging that there is a problem. And then obviously some of the footballers now, like Raheem Sterling, people like that, have opened their mouth. And, I, and a lot of people say, oh, you, you know, uh, don't say anything. But the thing is, no one's going to listen to the guy at, at Barnet who's on £200 a week who can easily be, be uh, closed down. But they won't mess about with people that are on a lot of money. So if you want to find me or if you want to, if you want to leave me out of the team, it's going to cause an economic problem for the, for the club. No one's going to do that. So it's important that people with economic value and, and status and um, don't really have to worry about, about being uh, punished for their views um, open, their, open their mouths and say what the real problems are. Yeah, and it's, it's been good as well to see like somebody like Les Ferdinand, who's, who's director of football in, in QPR, obviously like Sir Les to me as a QPR fan, but he's really been beating the drum, hasn't he, alongside yourself over the last few years about getting uh, people of diverse backgrounds into football and also higher, like you say, higher up positions in football, not just the lower down coach or, or player, but actually managers, first team managers and directors. Well, Les has always been one you know, through, through the years. He's always been one uh, to, to, to look at diversity and actually, and says it straight. Which is which is what you need. You, you know, sometimes we're so politically correct, we lose the point of what we're saying. So he he will say it straight as as I would, and um, you know, along with Les at, at the club, you know, Lee Hoos has actually started to to uh, bring people to account. You know, last uh, season our under 18s were suffered to some um, racial um, tensions when we were in Spain. And um, and he's really got it, it, the ball by the horns with that one, and trying to take UEFA and FIFA to task about why they haven't dealt with it. So the club, it, 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 as a whole, uh, doesn't tolerate um, inequality, um, and Les is at the forefront of that, um, which is really really good for everybody. But one of the things uh, that I think is very very important that we do realise that it's not just about having diverse people it's also about having good people so I think at the end of the day from my point of view I wouldn't change my staff I moan all the time but I wouldn't change my staff for anyone for I wouldn't look at another another club staff I don't care how high they are or where they are I wouldn't change my staff um, because I believe that the staff that we got is a high quality and it's becoming higher and higher quality and uh, the staff that we got are actually world leaders in what they do. Now people say, oh, QPR, what do you mean? Well, we are world leaders, it's about practice. It's not about the facilities and the building, it's about practice. We've got top um, um, sports scientists, we've got a top psychologists, we've got top coaches, we've got top academy manager, we've got top everything. So if we change our, our building, that, that doesn't necessarily now mean we're top, just because the building's changing the, and the, the pitches are like bowling greens, that doesn't mean that. So I think what we do, even from the safeguarding where we've got the, the, probably the best safeguarding um, officer that you, you're going to get in Janet Barr, you know, um, I think we take everything uh, as seriously as we can. Um, and obviously the application of things are not, doesn't come overnight. You know, at Tottenham it was, took us over a decade to, to get it to, that, to the level that it, that it 
that it ended up being. Yeah, and I think we, we'll, we'll jump in with Ross in a little bit about just your philosophy and what you put in place with Tottenham and, and then in, in the latter years with QPR. Just bringing you back then a little bit earlier to your playing career. So I, I saw that, and, and sometimes I want to kind of find out like where did this co- love of coaching come from and what can happen sometimes is that people will look at a famous coach and just remember them as a coach and they forget about that person as, as a player. Um, so I saw like, in, for instance, 1983, you played in the FA, FA Cup final in Wembley, 99,000 people. Uh, who were you playing against? Only Manchester United. And they had, you know, Frank, like from an Irish point of view, Frank Stapleton, Kevin Moore, yeah. legendary yeah. players, but also Ray Wilkins, Brian Robson. Mm. Um, it, it must have been quite an event to be involved in. Yeah, I mean, at 21 years old, uh, to be honest with you, look, I wasn't a very good player. I was, I was, I was obsessed with the game, but I wasn't, I wasn't the most talented. I was uh, genetically an outstanding athlete uh, and an average footballer. Um, and you know, when when you think about it, in those days, the cup final was the biggest event. You know, it was it was on the TV all, all week. Um, it was similar to what the Grand National is. You know, the whole world, the whole country stops to watch it. So it was a, a massive event for me and my family. Um, and, it, and people always say about big events, you know, uh, enjoy them because they flash by and it did flash by. It absolutely flashed by. And it, and it wasn't in the days where after the game I was getting, you know, you weren't getting in your Ferrari, you know, you're probably getting on the tube, you know, to, 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 to go where you needed to go. And, and to be fair, it was one of the first cup finals where everything was a little bit galactico uh, we, we we went on a helicopter because uh, we were sponsored by British Caledonian so we actually flew on a helicopter we uh, um, from Brighton and we, we landed in, in a field in a school nearby and it was we had white suits and white shoes it was, it was ridiculous <laughs> but it was, it was you know it's a, another great memory memory in, in uh, in your life, you know, and you know, on that, on the, on the way there, I think just before the quarterfinal, we played Liverpool, the old Liverpool, you know, with Graham Soonis and and Kenny Dalglish and all that, and we beat them. Um, so it was a, it was a fantastic year, you know, as regards, as regards getting to that cup final. Yeah, and you, you, you drew two two in the first game. You were playing right back, and then yeah. you, you were injured for the replay, and you lost four nil. Well, you know, I didn't say, I didn't want to say, <laughs> I didn't want to say, um, it was, I got done by another countryman of yours, Norman Whiteside. Oh, you know, yeah, it, yeah. It was, uh, at that time, both of us had a reputations for uh, taking no prisoners and I'd been sent off, I think, twice that season. So, the, the, I decided to not pull out of a tackle, but I've tried to play nicely and he didn't. And, uh, <laughs> that was a broken ankle. There you go. Oh, God. It was actually, I just saw as well, there was another Irishman, Michael Rob- Robinson, who, yeah, who played up front for you that day. Yeah. He passed away this week, didn't he? Uh, yeah. Last week. Uh, he's a great man, uh, uh, an absolute fantastic person. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons people stayed in the game was for centre forwards like that, because I could just get it out of my feet and hit the channel and he would make me look good. Yeah. He was one of those, uh, ran, ran in the corner for you, um, never made a ball, uh, a, a, a bad ball look bad. He always made it look like you meant it. Yeah. Um, and he was a great fella, uh, you know, 
great with the fans. And, and to be fair, he had a good career. He went to Liverpool after and was part of their, their um, winning trophies there. He went to Spain and he ended up being the Gary Lineker of Spain. Yeah. You know, he was on TV there. I mean, for an Englishman to go and play in Spain, learn the language and become a pundit is incredible. That was a, a huge thing. You know, the, the other interesting thing I saw about that game was in the first game, there was 24 players played between the two starting 11s mm. and then one sub. And there, yeah. was, there was one player who wasn't either English, Scottish, Welsh or Irish. He, he was, a, he was a, a Dutch player for United, Arnold. Murray. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, in that period in the early 80s, it was the Premier First Division or whatever you want to call it, Second Division at that stage, you're talking about predominantly English players with a good number of Scottish yeah. and then the odd Irish or Welsh thrown in, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and Britain, if you, there's a programme on TV the other day called When, uh, when England Ruled Europe. Yeah. And they, Nottingham Forest, Aston Villa, Liverpool used to consistently win European trophies um, with English players. Um, so, you know, we, we can talk about, well, the game's changed because we've got uh, more foreign players and this and that and the other. But, you know, there's something, there's something that's gone slightly missing there. I don't know if it was the fact that we had to spend those five years uh, when there was the hooliganism and, and we were banned for five years. I think that after when we came back, back into to Europe, I think that changed a little bit. But, you know, we talk about to the players now, you know, you know, and I don't want to, want to come across as in my day uh, because, I, because the game has evolved fantastically. But you had one sub. So to get into anyone's team, you had to be one of the best 12 in the club. And what they would do is they take one man, one, one extra person, so 13 players, 14 max used to travel to games because uh, you'd have another goalkeeper. But you'd only have one extra, um, one extra um, outfield player just in case someone got ill. And um, so I remember my first 13th man was uh, at Ellen Road uh, with Alan Mullery when we were in the, uh, in, in, in the what would be the Premier League now. And, uh, you know, you've got a chance because someone gets ill, you're on the bench and then you, you might play. Uh, now you can be one of the best 22 in a club to be involved in the squad. One of the best 22 and you could probably play a whole season, never play in a full 90 minutes. You could, you know, because of the rotation and stuff like that. Now, I know that's an involvement of the game, so I'm not going to say it's right or wrong. I'm just pointing out the differences. Yeah, it's different, it's different isn't it? Because obviously in the modern day, the Premier League, like, and I've heard you saying it at some stages, that you're not competing with the best in England in order to mm -hmm. get a professional contract. You're, you're basically competing with the best in the world, aren't you? Well, you are, because if, if, you, if you go back, say where, where we are at, at QPR is a, is a very good situation in some respects. If you look at, say, at Tottenham, first and foremost, up until maybe under 14, 15, you're competing with the people in and around uh, London and just outside London with our philosophy. We didn't used to take people from all over the place. But by the time you get to 15, you're competing with the rest of the country. And then by the time you get to 16, 17, 18, now you're looking at Europe and now you're looking at the rest of the, the, rest of the world. So um, it's very, very difficult. You know, we used to do day release with the under-16s and I, was, I used to say to them, look, if you play for Tottenham and you are, I don't know, fifth in the league, you have to be the fifth best fullback <laughs> of choice in the league. I know it's not 
as easy as that. But in general, you're going to have to be one of the best in the world to play at that level. To you know, and, and so you're really, really looking at. We talk about what the one percent of one percent. I think it's even less than that, really, uh, at, at, at top level. Um, whereas before in England, you were competing with English players. Um, so I would imagine that they would have had more of a chance, but that evens itself out with the fact that there was only 12 players. So it sort of evens itself out with the competition because you didn't, you, you couldn't be one of 20, 21 players in a squad. You had to actually be one of the best, the best, um, 12 players in the club. And basically th th there was no luxuries, uh, in those days. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so for the rest of your career, after starting out with Bristol, Bristol City, born in Birmingham, as you, as yeah. you point out, that, that some people think it's Bristol, you, you went on and went played through the divisions with, with Swindon Town and Southend. And then you took a few interesting turns of going to Malta to play and coach and going to America with uh, Charleston and, and other teams. What, what, first of all, why did you go abroad? And secondly, was the progression into coaching a kind of a natural progression or, or how did you find it? No, I mean, uh, to, to, to be totally honest with you, when I, uh, I started my apprenticeship, at, I'm a London, I'm a London, I, I was born in Birmingham, but I've brought, brought up in, I'm an Arsenal sport, I've brought up 200 yards from the ground. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one of the things about resilience, I mean, I got released from Arsenal, then I got released from Charlton uh, as a schoolboy. And then I got released, and then I went to Bristol City, got my apprenticeship, and then I didn't get my pro. I, I got released, and I went to Brighton, um, then Swindon, then Southend. But I had—I was very, very injury-prone player. So I've had 15 ops. So I probably have only played, I don't know, 200 games maybe in my life. Two, two, 250 depends because I played abroad quite a few. Yeah. Uh, the the advent into coaching. Uh, one of the things you'll find that we talk about, we talk about sports science, we, we, can, we can negotiate because I, I decide that I wanted to learn about it. So being football was, although I love football, it's not my life really. And it's not, and I, I don't like it. I don't like the industry as, as such. I love the game, love the, a lot of the people in it, but the industry is very difficult and it's very ruthless. So to me, it's important to be more of a rounded person and, 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 and know different things. Um, so when I was when I was a, um, a, a player, I used to do other things um, outside football, which I probably won't go into on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, but um, I did my coaching badge at 21 with a guy called Brian Eastick, who who ended up being my coach at, at well, he was the coach at Brighton at the time. I did it. I failed um, at 21, and then I did it again with John Allpress um, the year later. I don't know why I did it, but I just did it. Um, anyway, I didn't coach then for till I was 29, probably. Um, and I was the least person that you'd ever think would be a coach. The absolute least. If you talk to any of my mates or one of my, my, I was the least, least person you would ever would think would be a coach. But when I, um, I had a bad, I had a bad injury and, um, I had to retire in England at 28, 29. And then I lost, I wasn't a very good businessman. I lost, um, any money that I had. So I had to, um, I had to get the boots out again and I went to Malta, um, and started playing there and, and, uh, the manager got the sack and cause I was one of the foreigners, I was earning more money than anybody else. They said, right, you got to take the game. 
and then I started coaching and I was probably absolutely useless looking back now to, to, to um, you know, how, how you evolve. But we were quite successful, um, you know, because basically what happened was the team that I was involved in, because of uh, some irregularities, got relegated two divisions. <laughs> um, and um, we got promoted. We, we ended up getting um, two promotions and to the cup final. So I stayed in charge of the team. Um, and I started coaching again. And then I realised then that at one stage, when you're running back and it's like you've got the bungee rope on and people are running past you, that your, uh, your, your days are probably numbered. Um, so I decided to, um, to, to keep coaching um, and I decided to come back to England and do my, um, my coaching badge, my, my coaching badge in England. Chris, in fairness, when you're saying about running with the bungee rope on you, Ross, Ross is always like that. He, he got that when he was at 17. <laughs> Cheers, kids. <laughs> so, but, so, so you, you, were, you were in America coaching and playing then, and, and it's interesting. Because, no, that was in Malta. In sorry, Malta, Malta and then in, in, to America also. Yeah, what happened was in, when I was in Malta, because you only got paid during the season, and I lived in a hotel in my in my uh, in my boss's hotel. But come the summertime, they don't they want you out of the hotel. So you can either work on the boats, um, or you can go to uh, the PFA. Did brilliant for me, Mick Maguire. They got me to a place to go out to start going out and coaching in America in the summer. Mm. So I, I went out to Myrtle Beach, and uh, I ended up getting a massive affiliation with with uh, with the summer. I mean, I had. I had uh, a guy called Steve Rigby, who who had different camps going all all over all over the uh, all over America, and I ended up getting a good reputation out there. And it done really well for me because you're coaching for two three months every day, probably the worst sessions you've ever seen. But the, a lot of their coaches were high school coaches, and so anything you did, they appreciated. Uh, and I actually, to be, believe it or not, I took the camps very very seriously. Um, and I ended up coaching. I mean, I've probably done more camps than, than anyone I know around around America. So it's it's been that was a really good uh, starting point for me. And in, in the end, I ended up going to a place called Cocoa Beach. Um, and Ricky Hill, Ricky Hill came there, and um, he was in charge of the Cocoa before there was the MLS. He was in charge of the Cocoa Expos, and I and I went now. Um, and I played and helped him coach the, the team. Um, and then he came back to, to England to go to Sheffield Wednesday and then Tottenham. Uh, so the next summer, I was actually the head coach. Um, and when Ricky was there, we got to the national final. So it'd be like getting to the MLS finals. And, and the, the, you know, such a, a vast country, you're playing all over the place. Um, and then fortunately for me, the, the, the guy that was there, there was funding it. He asked me to, to coach, uh, he used to fund Florida Tech University. So I got, so that fall, my last, um, I did um, half, half a season coaching Florida Tech. So that was another massive coaching experience, learning about the NCAA rules, to come on the bench unless you know the rules, stuff like that. And then, um, and also coaching, um, coaching the Expos 
So uh, I was still playing in those days, but near, right at the end. So like if we were winning three 0 I put myself on at number ten. Something like that. But um, that was a massive, massive um, learning experience um, as regards coaching. Both of those things were really, really important. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you actually find sometimes, not always the case, that some, some former players who weren't the most successful actually go on to be a very good coach because they've mm. probably seen other things in their career and they've had to mm. meet setbacks and everything. Well, the thing is, it's like if you're a player and if you're a top player and you're coaching, you don't understand sometimes why people can't do things. But because I wasn't very good, I know why. I knew why why I couldn't bend it and stuff like that. So teaching yourself is important. You know, people don't don't understand. It's like even even when you become good at anything, some you because you can shortcut the learning learning process very quickly. Sometimes it's very difficult to bring people with you because you 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 just do it automatically. So uh, a lot of top players, I think now more top players are becoming. Uh, managers and coaches because they're, they're actually going through the learning the process of learning all the stuff that goes with it as before a lot of the top coaches just well why can't you bend it in the top corner you know you know why, why not you know so I, I did learn a lot from being an average footballer yeah yeah it sounds like as well that you ended up like especially in America you ended up coaching young kids older children uh, yeah. uh, university players play kind of also ran players adult players yeah. and must have yeah. given you a really good experience like an all-round experience then of coaching well i've done more women i've done a lot of women's football when i was in america coaching girls teams and women's teams so that that was that was an important uh communication step um and and cultural differences not only american differences but obviously coaching coaching women especially when the game was in its infancy so um, a lot of male coaches coach the women's game as if they're coaching male teams yeah. and and uh, their expectations um, of the, the physicality of the game are, are different you know in, in those days in especially in America they've always had good women football teams technically so their game was their actually the women's game in America was more pure than, than, than the male uh, uh, game so there was uh, there was a lot to be learned from that. A lot to yeah. be learned from that. Yeah, and then so when you came back to England, then you got involved with the FA, didn't you? And and so you've like over you've kind of dipped in and out of the FA at different times, and you've you've scouted for Kevin Keegan. You've been in charge of the under twenties. You were like at the nineteen ninety nine Youth World Cup, and you've kind of fulfilled different roles, haven't you? Well, when I, I came back, uh, I left Malta. And decided to, um, I had no qualifications at all, apart from I started doing, when I was in Malta, because you get siestas there, what I did was I did a diploma in physiology and anatomy, uh, which I love. I absolutely love. I, I, was, I, I did a uh, uh, diploma in, in manicure and pedicure, which, which I used to do. And I'm a masseur and aromatherapy. I did all that while I was there because they're affiliated to English to English qualifications. So there's a lot of English stuff that goes out there. So what I did was I, did, I came back to uni to, to become a, a teacher. And during that, during that time, um, I, 
I worked at Orient as the head of um, uh, player development, youth development at Orient. But in that as well, at that time, I was doing uh, football in the community. Believe it or not, for QPR was my first one, Andy Evans. Yeah. I met him on my full badge. <laughs> and he asked, he said, oh, you can, you can get a bit of work. Because in those days, there was no black coaches and there was no one really giving people a break. So I did that. And it's funny enough, 20 years later, I ended up being, Batman's just incredible. So I did that for, for Brentford and, and Wimbledon. And then um, I got the job at Orient uh, with Paul Brush. Paul Brush and Pat Holland brought me in there. Um, and I got that really for a mate of mine, initially, Ozzy Abanji. I bumped into him at uni and he introduced me to them and it, and it went on and went on. But through that time, I'd always go on the courses with the FA. I did my full badge. I passed it. That I had things uh, to offer as regards the... Uh, mainly, I came in as the, uh, the fitness person because I had 10 other diplomas in fitness by this stage. Well, during my university time, I was, I was doing other things. So doing the course, the course was a byproduct, really. I was doing the course, but I was doing loads of other courses on the side. I just got the bug for learning. Yeah. You know, you get that bug. And, and if you say, if you're doing anatomy and physiology, there's loads of other courses that, that link to it. So um, I ended up doing personal training awards after personal training awards. Not, not the ones now where you can go there for two days and get it. Yeah. Like proper things where you have to know all the attachments of origins and insertions and all that. Not like now, you just need to know to do a press up, you get the awards. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So, so I, I, I learned a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff, and um, but stuff that you could apply, not just airy fairy stuff that you can apply. So, um, so, so basically, the, the FA headhunted me. Really, they asked me for, to, to first of all, in the old days, there was only five regional directors in the country. So you'd have London and South Beach, you'd have the Midlands, you'd have um, Northwest, uh, Northwest, Northeast, and you'd have the Midlands. And you were in charge of everything from the scouting to the CPD of the clubs to putting on the awards, everything. You were in charge. So it was quite a difficult job, massive um, learning curve. So they asked me to apply and, um, and I applied and got the job. And um, I was Howard Wilkinson's assistant with the England under 18s. Now, if people think that I am strict. <laughs> he, he, the, the learning curve was absolutely ridiculous, but I did learn a lot. And there was a lot of good coaches there to learn from. Dick Bate was like, one of my main mentors. You had Kenny Swain, you had uh, Craig Simmons, who's probably forgot more than we all know about player development. Um, you had John Peacock, you had uh, Mindhunter, you had loads of people that you could learn from at the time. At the time, uh, but it was of such a such a steep learning curve. Um, if you didn't keep up, you 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 were gone really. You know, and uh, there was the, the experiences there were, were 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 phenomenal. Like I said, helping to write the the award um, was in, was in, was an important factor for me. But I was able to do that because when I was at Orient, I had done the uh, Treatments of Injury Award over three years. So be before you could be a physio, before before needed a chart of the physio, you needed this award to be a physio at a club. Mm -hmm. So when I was at Orient, I used to be the physio as well when I was being the coach. I used to be one of the physios for the, for the games because we couldn't afford any. 
So in, in those days, you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, you didn't have no money to get the, so we'd get the paramedics. So, so I started that from back then, we'd get a paramedic and we'd get some students. And then what happened is I'd stand between two pitches and coach one game and, 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 and have the physio bag. <laughs> and the student would go over the other side. But sometimes we couldn't pay her, so we had to phone her up in the morning and say, can you not come? <laughs> was, that, was that a physio bag, Chris, or a sponge <laughs> and a bucket of water? Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the sponge. But that was uh, me and Paul Brush. Brush, he was, was, uh, he was at Tottenham now. He, 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 I played with him at South End. Um, and he was, um, he had moved on to the youth team by then. But so you had that, those experience then of driving the minibus and washing the kit, washing the kit, uh, and making sure that you finish your lecture, quickly get down to Brisbane Road <laughs> to, to put the kit in the dryer <laughs> and then Different get words. back to uni. <laughs> it's no, it's no wonder you're often telling the physio and sports scientists what to do nowadays. <laughs> well, that, that that that's what you needed before. It took three years. You could you, you did it. Um, uh, the actual exam was. Listen, if you're not that way inclined, it's 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 difficult. But it's given me a massive learning of of you know when people are talking. You know, I always think it, you don't have to be the expert at everything, but what you have to do is know who is. Yeah. You have to you have to know you have to know who is. So. Um, the Orient days were, un, were un, unbelievable um, learning, learning curve, you know, and I was still coaching multiple teams, yeah. multiple teams then, uh, and playing in the reserves as well. So we used to play in the reserves. That used to be, so that, that was good as well. Me and Tony Flynn, who was the, the, the physio at Colchester for years, but he used to be the physio there. We used to play in the reserves because the money wasn't like it is now, you know, where you've just got loads of players. Uh, flying about, you know, you might you, you you might end up with, I don't know, um, nine players or ten. You know, it, it depends. I mean, Addy, you know, Addy, our goalkeeping coach, yeah. he was at Orient when he first came into the country. Into the country, so um, I learned a lot there, and I used to go on a lot of uh, different, um, like uh, to Bisham Abbey to watch Dick Bate and to watch the, um, people coach. And try and learn a lot about uh, about coaching from them. A lot of my teaching theory um, comes into the coaching. You know, like with we, with us, everything's about the zone of proximal development. Yeah. So we we use that, um, and and anything that can transfer, I'll try and use it. Try and use it. You know. It's interesting because it sounds like you. It, it was an unconventional route, but there was years there you were where you were preparing you know, in order to go into a club then with a kind of a philosophy, with a kind of a package. But Ross, you're, you want to bring on to the kind of Tottenham era then and the, 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 your philosophy, Chris, and everything. Yeah, Chris, so you went into Spurs, uh, you just said, for over a decade, 2004. Would you be able to just maybe say what was your remit going into, going into Spurs at the time? Uh, well, listen, John McDermott and myself, I knew John. For, for years before and uh, we'd always kept in contact and then he was working at the FA and then I came and worked at the FA and we always used to speak about player development all the time. Uh, so I was in working in Florida at the time and um, he, had, he, he was at Watford, he was at the FA, he was back at the FA then, another stint that he'd done at the FA 
And uh, he had left there and went to Tottenham. And he phoned me and asked me if I was uh, if I'd be interested in 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 uh, coming and being his number two assistant academy manager um, at Tottenham, which is a smaller version of head of coaching at our place. Really, you only go up to under sixteen there, and uh, and then I assisted Alex Ingleford sometimes with the under 18s So the remit there was that. You know, there's only, like I said, there's two ways you get a job. Either you go somewhere where the philosophy is already in place and you're, you're coming in to carry it on, or they want a complete change. Now, Tottenham in those days had only, hadn't produced anyone for a little while. Uh, even though they produced some good players, they hadn't produced anyone for a little while. So they wanted, they wanted a, a change of, of culture and philosophy. Um, and so myself and John designed one and we'd been speaking about it for years and we put it into place. In, in how we were going to play, what we were going to do, what we wanted the culture to be. Um, and we set a 12-year 12 12 year journey was uh, because we realised then that kids, players were getting into first teams, uh, not at 18, like like when I played. If you, if you weren't in a team by 20, you probably was not going to play. Nowadays, people are playing at 21, 22. So we looked at nine to you know, 21, 22, and we, we so we called it a 12-year journey, um, and that finished in 2017 from 2005. So yeah, so it finished it finished around 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 then. So if you look at the players that are, that are coming through, I mean, for 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 John's John's point of view, when he came in, he had to be very very diligent and very strict about the red line. We called it the red line. So. Things can come in and influence it and 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 evolve it, but the red line never changes. It never changes. You still keep your identity of what you're doing. You're not you're not saying you're not open-minded to other things, but you won't change. So it's a difference between evolving and, and, and saying, right, we're gonna we're gonna change. If you change, see if you if you start in 2005, say, and you change in 2007, now the now the 12 year journey goes to 2019. So you're always back at year one. So you have to believe in what you're doing and stick to it. Um, and, and that's what we did. Um, the, the, the thing was, at the time, it was, it was very, very difficult because there was no evidence of what we'd done, apart from I'd been at Orient and there'd been a few players that had come through, like Nicky Shorey went to play for England and people like that. So the development philosophy I've always had, we, we never used to win at Orient, but we used to have players going in the team. Or we used to have players getting contracts, um, but trying to get people to 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 do it, we had a, a FIFO um, um, law at our place. So you have a fit in, or you, know, you can go. You know, so so um, we didn't have. Oh, you can bring this idea because at some stage in your life, you know, we were. I was forty one or forty, whatever it might have been, and John would have been late thirties. So at some stage in your life, you have to innovate. And if you believe in something, you have to, you have to, to, to put it into place and you have to work with it. Um, too many times we go, we go on, we, we hear people say, oh, what are you going to change? Well, I'm not changing anything. I'm just making what we've got better. Simple, you know? Um, so the Tottenham one, the first couple of days, me and John, we were having a chat and uh, we said saying about, that we were spending 900 grand at the time. So I think John had a five year 
uh, sort of deal at the time or, or five-year plan, the club had said, right, you know, in five years' time. So, so we said, right, 900 grand, four, $4 million 500 to give back. And I circled it and put it in the draw. And that was a motivation for me because one player at Tottenham getting in the team, you probably paid that back. You probably paid that back. But what we were saying is like I, I always say to, to you guys, at the end of the day, the, the chairman, you know, Les, Lee, Tony Fernandes, they're not asking me anything about where's our money? Where's the money? Where's the money? We, we've invested. That's the end of football. The bottom line of football is that money gets invested. So people want players. People, you know, everybody wants everyone to, to get on and everything's going well. But in the end, when, when the five years is over, they're going to say, where's the players? We've spent X amount of money get, getting here. So if you actually look at it now and you think uh, a lot of academies, say you're a cap two academy like, like us, you might spend, even if you spend a million pound a year, it's more likely to be two roughly for a lot of cat twos. So if you want to get something under nine in the team, you're going to spend 24 million to get him in the team. So that's what you would have spent along that way. Now, don't get me wrong. You probably would have offset that with players that would have got in the team along the way. But if you get nobody in the team between now and 12 years, the plan that you've set, you've spent 24 million. So what, what's the point? And you know that's only going to go up. So paramount that you have that focus that people have to get in the team. So you have to have a two two we, at our place now. We've got a two uh, a two tone the prom uh, um, attack because we have to make sure that the, the bottom the bottom of the pyramid is well serviced. But we have to also we've got a slightly different diff, different to Tottenham. We've actually got to polish other people's other people's problems. So people have been uh, let go. We've got to see. We've got to see where, what's the good bit that they didn't see. So they've. To, to be fair to them, most people produce people for other people. So you can't say that they haven't done a good job. All they've done is not find. They've not found the bit that we've found. That that that's all. So um, I think so. This is slightly more difficult. So just on that, Chris. Then you delved into the the, the pyramid a little bit. Talk a little bit about the pyramid. So from a philosophy point of view, what is the pyramid and, and how does it work throughout the, the year groups? Well, the pyramid, you start off with the, at the bottom. So we believe the way that we want to play, that, that the basis of, of becoming a footballer is being able to handle the ball. So, so if people can handle the ball and they've got some expression about them, they, they're going to be noticed and they're going to... It's easier to to play simple when you can play complicated mm. rather than the other way around. If you can't, if you can't uh, do the tricks and flicks or you can't control it, you, can't, you don't want to dribble with it, it's harder, then, it's harder then to put that in you when you, get, when you get older. So most players that come into the team at the pyramid are dribblers because that's how they get scouted. You're never going to scout an under nine centre-half, are you? You know, you're, not, you're, not, you're not doing that. Well, you know, he's good, he's good at blocking the pass. You're not doing that. So as you go up the pyramid, you start, you start looking at uh, movement experimentation. So you start looking at um, the pitches start getting bigger. 
So you have to have a shape. So you're starting to play people in different places around 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 the pitch. Um, you start looking at um, um, what 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 their characteristics are, and as and as you move up 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 the pyramid pyramid, then you start looking at at, at where they get what their positions are. So their positions could be one or two positions that that you start honing in and what they do. They don't start playing all over all over the place because if 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 they do that they don't actually learn anything so a lot of the times what happens is, is people say oh he's played four positions this game and what i'm saying well that's really for that's really should be at, at the bottom of the pyramid where it's less organized so the, the more organized it, it, it is the more you wanted to try to get them to understand the different parts of the pitch um and 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 we we call that movement movement. Uh, go and tell me movement refine movement, movement experiments <laughs> movement. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, so that's the movement that we're saying all over the pitch that that we want people to understand what other people do on the pitch as well. But as they start getting to the point where they need to get a contract, you're looking at positional refinement. You're looking at where do they play on the pitch? What's their identity? Now we understand that we don't want that early specialization at 10, nines and 10s, but as they get older, they're, they're seeking to get a contract. So they have to have some pitch geography. They have to understand where, where they play on the pitch and it might be one or two positions. Now, if you're at a bigger club where they can wait for you, uh, you know, at Tottenham, we used to just have, sometimes we'd have front, front end players, players that we weren't exactly sure whether they were gonna be a center forward or, or a 10. Or, but we knew that they, they that, that they're more likely to play up uh, front part of the pitch than the back part of the pitch. Now, once that, the, the 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 sessions then become much more bespoke to the positions, so the players have to know um, all the the job descriptions of, of of the position. So if they're a centre half and they can't head it, they're not they're not going to be one. They're not they're not going to be one. If they if they're a winger and they can't cross it. They're not going to be one, so we have to make sure that they can do that. Um, and then, we, we, then when they're coming in in full time, we're talking about developing expertise. It's a much more uh, focused um, point of work, both uh, emotionally, technically, uh, physically. Um, so, round about there, we have to make sure that they meet the physical demands as well as the technical demands, and obviously. Because we, we, we also believe that coaching is based, starts with the social, psychosocial. We, we have to make sure that that's important as, uh, uh, as well. And that's, that's the, the backdrop of all our coaching, is that. But once they start getting into that um, 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 once, they, once they start get, get, getting into that developing expertise, you're now looking at what contracts they can get. How close can we get them to the first team? The only thing that we can't control, we can't control with the very top of the pyramid because the managers, we've had seven managers in five years. So what we have to do is prepare the players to be able to, to, to meet the manager that comes in. So the players have to be adaptable. They have to be educated. They've got to be adaptable. So when a manager comes in, that player, if that manager wants to play long, no problem, I can do it. If he wants to play tippy-tappy, no problem, we can do it. Uh, now, some players will be better suited than others to do it. 
because we have a lot of undermaturated players. So we're hoping that we got uh, managers that come in that want to, to want to play pivot play because the types of players that we get in, that's the, you know they're the, the flair players that we like. But a lot of managers don't. So because we've got a whole group of players, we're hoping that somebody in that group will uh, meet his fancy. Yeah, that's great, Chris. And you spoke there about the uh, the job essentials and making sure each player knows their job and what they're good at. How does that link in then to the individual plans? And how do you go about delivering those individual plans? So what we do, we have a multidisciplinary approach to it. So first and foremost, you have to have a list of essentials that, that, that each job has a job description. So from Basildon to Barcelona, the centre-half has to head it. So, so it's, there's, there's no, there's no like saying, oh, well, they don't do that. No, most job descriptions in most teams have similar things to it. How you manipulate that job will depend on your philosophy, but most people will have, will have to be able to do it. So if you think about it, uh, within, a midfield, within a midfield cohort, there'll be a range of skills that people can do. But if you can't do three or four of them, you won't be a midfield player. You won't, you won't. If you're a winger and you can't attack effectively, you're not going to be one. So there's going to be things that you're going to need to do. Can you receive on your furthest foot? Have you got a trick or do you play early? Can you run in behind or do, do you link? What, what, what do you do? But we have to know that and we have to know that based on your characteristics and your physical capabilities and your, your, your emotional capabilities as well as your technical. So some people, for argument's sake, they might say, well, what do you mean emotional um, tendencies? Well, some people like the ball hitting them. When they go to block the ball, some people like it. They don't mind it. Some people have got the knack of knowing how to score, how to get in front of people. You know, some, you look at a lot of the goal scorers, they're not always the best players. But what, what they'll do is they'll have an instinct to get in front of somebody. They'll have an instinct to know where the ball drops and stuff, and stuff like that. So you have to understand what, what people will want to do emotionally rather than just, right, he's a midfield player, he's going to play like this. Because there's a range of job descriptions within, within, um, within that, that part of the field. So a lot of the times now, how we try to integrate that within our training sessions is every training session has a yin and yang to it. So if we're working on an attacking theme, the defenders will have will have some sort of um, they'd have to get something out of it. So when we do our journals, every player has a journal. The journal will will abbreviate the session because we have a, a language that we speak. So we say uh, keep him out of the red. Everyone will know that that is to keep him out in the middle of the goal. So you don't have to say get out there, bend your knees, show him wide. Everybody knows that that's that's what that means. So the sessions are all abbreviated, so they're not long-winded to write. But there always has to be, what's in it for me? So if we're working on on uh, on crossing, say, and the fullback has to run out there, and um, and you know he's gonna he, he's gonna try and block the cross, we may know we might not even coach that fullback fully in that in that session. But he has to know what his job would be in that in, in that. So he he would have to say, get out there, get out there quickly. Uh, make sure we might play predictable, try and block, uh, stop the turn if it's a centre-half, whatever his, his job description is, 
he should know every session that he's getting that in the sessions. Now, if he doesn't get that over a period of time, he should, he's well entitled to come to say to us, look, you're saying I can't do this and I can't do that, but how many sessions have we done on what my essentials? And it should be logged. And it should be not logged as a session, it should be logged as his ILP during that time. Now, one of the biggest things, the uh, two major incidents that, that made me continue to do that was when I was at Orient years ago, and I would be head of player development and I'd go and watch a player, I'd go and watch a game and I'd say, oh, he ain't done very well in. And they would say, well, he, he's been doing well, it's just when you come, he's had a bad game, you know? So we started then recording, you know, like giving them marks. It was very, it was very prehistoric at the time, the way we were doing it. But it meant that the person who'd done well for, for uh, six weeks doesn't get judged on one bad performance in the seventh week. And then when I was at uh, Spurs, we had a player called John Abika and uh, Alex Inglethorpe uh, was saying, oh, he, he, he was a wide player. He doesn't pin the far post. So uh, I thought to myself, right, I went and looked at my sessions, all that I wrote down. And I said, Al, hands up, mate. It's my fault. I never, I didn't do any sessions with him on that. But that was the bottom of his list of essentials to get a contract. Because at the beginning of that term, his crossing was poor. His 1v1s were good. So I thought to get him over the line, let's get, you know, because he's, he's not going to not get a contract for not pinning the far post. But he's definitely not getting a contract for not crossing the ball or not taking people on 1v1. So it was about prioritising what was going to get that person a, a, a contract. But as a coach, I've still got to put my hand up and say I've not rounded him off. So on the handover, I, I, I could possibly say to Alex, look, we worked on this, this, this and this. The far post pinning, he's not very good at it. So, you know, that might be something that you might put in his ILP now. So, that, that, so that's, basically, that's basically how how you look at the ILPs and the ILPs are what's going to get him a job first. So it's not about what's going to get, get, going to get him only into QPR. It's about what's going to get him a job. So if you say like a, I was a fullback, right? So if you looked at it and thought, right, fullback's got six or seven passes. He's got the wide man. He's got the first ball, he's got the channel. He's got the reverse into midfield. Um, and then he's got obviously back to the keeper and center half. And then he's got the luxury, the diag. Right now, if you think about it, Basildon to Barcelona, the first forward and the channel is getting you a job if you're playing in step seven, it might get you a job depending. But as you move up the, up the ladder or up the ladder or to more intricate football where people might want you to reverse it into midfield, you're going to need them six or seven passes. But if you've got them in your locker, you can choose. You can choose based on the manager because there might be some people at step seven that want to play into midfield. But you have to have that, you have to have that uh, in your toolbox. Otherwise, you'll, 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 you'll fail. But if you've, if you've only got the little tippy-tappy one into midfield, you can only play for that type of manager. So you've got to make sure whatever happens that we are continually working on their toolbox. That's, a, that's some great stuff there, Chris. And I think it highlights that a lot of people look at ILPs as just the clinic work. So just go and do your clinics. But like the importance of getting them in the sessions 
day in, day out for every player. That's the hardest part, right, as a coach? Mm. Well, I think it's, I think it's very difficult as a, as a coach because, first and foremost, if you're a young coach, presence is important with, with, with the group. And you always want your session to go very, very well and be perfect. But until you understand the context of what makes a good session, it's difficult to understand uh, where the IOPs fit in because people would rather the session look good than the session be a learning tool. So they'd rather a clean, nice session that everybody says, well, well done, um, rather than think, well, session weren't the best, but, you know, Trent, Trent kept on, he stopped the turn 10 times. He did really well. He was poking it. He did, he did a coach or, uh, you know, one of the little midfield players got into the pockets that, you know, so it depends how you gauge what, how good the session is and what people got out of it. So if I want the session to be good for me, it's easy to make the session good for me because I make the, I, what I do is I'll put the demands down and make the session um, lower than their ZPD and they complete the session and, and everybody's clapping at the end and it's great. But sometimes the session has to, has, sometimes we, 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 don't look, we don't look at late and learning. So late and learning is basically when, you know, you practice something over and over again and you refine it and before you know it, oh, you know, we didn't think he could do it, but six weeks later he's doing it, uh, you know, because what you do is you're practicing the process to the end product. So going to a fullback, again, for argument's sake, we might say, right, fullback gets it, he plays into midfield, he comes back to him, he plays into the forward, they set it back to the, to, to the midfield player and he overlaps and crosses it. Now, he might, he might cross that over the bar and then you come back and do it again. You think, oh, he can't do this, he can't do that. But what you don't realise is you're still practising him playing into the front man. You're still practising the timing of the run He's all practicing the fact that he's got to be aware of the, of the cues. All you've got to do is take the cross back to the lab. And the, 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 the cross might be the bit where you're just looking at, well, hold on a minute, his contact's not right, or he's not looking at the ball long enough to, to make a proper contact. But what we'll do is we'll throw the baby out with a bathwater because we'll say he can't do that. But he can do the eight steps before. And it's probably the two last steps that he can't do. So how do we then get those two last steps and magnify them to, to, to finish off the process? So, you know, we, we forget about latent learning and how important, how important that is and what parts of it do we take back to the lab? So it, to start with, it could be that he's not getting the pass right. So really, we're failing at step one. So we might have to take that to the lab. Uh, and, and then we can work on all the other stuff, the movement stuff that, 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 that joins in with it. Yeah, that's great stuff. And, and there's a real emergence in, let's say, more recent coaching around this game-based approach that players can problem-solve in games, and that's the way to go. What, what's your thoughts on that, especially talking about taking it back to the lab? Uh, give a little bit of context on how, you, how you're training. All right. I'm a school teacher. Um, I've taught uh, Key Stage 1, 2 and 3, and I've you know, done some lectures at university. So. One of the things you don't do when you go, you go to any school and you're trying to teach maths. You don't just put some cubes and, you know, a ruler and that on the table and say, right, teach yourself algebra. Yeah, you don't do that, do you? So there must be some level of platform before you can, before you can, you can do it. So we can all say, are oh, they learning the game? You can only learn in the game when you can play the game. 
So if you've got a context, you can play the game, you will understand, you, you can then learn in the game. But if you've got no idea of the game, how can you, you learn it? If you're, we're talking about different contexts. So it, there, was a, there was a thing a little while ago when people were talking about the Malcolm Glad, Gladwell's 10,000 hours, but it's not him that made it up. That's a thing from, from years ago. Um, but we've lost a lot of um, unregulated football. You know, we've lost a lot of that because, because for obvious reasons, the world's moved on. So learning in the game alone will not allow you to hone in certain skills that you need to, 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 to hone in. So um, going back to a centre-half, how do you get his timing of his heading if you're just doing it in a game? Because one of the things we work on is we talk about mechanics, mechanics, interference and, 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 and distractions. So if, you're, uh, if you haven't got the actual mechanics to run, jump, and head the ball, how are you going to learn it? In, in, how are you going to learn it? You need someone to guide you to that. And that might, that might take different processes. It might take a physical approach. It might be that your legs, your legs are not, are not uh, strong enough for you to get where you want, but potentially they could be. It might be that your coordination is not, not, not right. It might be that your actual ball contact is not, not, not correct. But if you just put someone in the game, they, they, then they're not just going to learn that just because they're playing in the game. Um, and a lot of the times, the, the, game, be, the game be the teacher can only be the teacher when you've got an idea of how to play it. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. Um, one more question before Kieran talks a little bit more about your managerial stuff at QPR. In terms of um, your philosophy around winning, I know you mentioned it earlier around the kids and, you know, winning is nothing. It doesn't really matter. Talk a little bit about that and about the, the real individual nature of matches and what you look for when you coach underage teams. Uh, right. First and foremost, everyone wants to win when they start. So I do, but it depends what we decide winning is. So if me and you were working on uh, making one of the fullbacks better on the turn, and then we, he plays a game against someone who's a great winger, very quick, and he turns quickly and wins eight out of 10, eight out of 10 foot races or blocks it, whatever, we've won. That's winning because for me, now he moves to the next stage of his career and we've, we've worked on that. We've had a technical approach and a, and a physical approach to it and maybe maybe a psychological approach it depends to it but we've won because we've helped to round that player off because in the end like i said the owners are not going to ask me how we got on against bristol City's under 16s they're just going to say he was the best player who did we have the best player or can we get someone into the first team so to me it depends what what you decide winning is if you think about it at one stage in the under 23s the, the team was Aussie, Finney, Chris Paul, Nico, Abire, Ilias, Charlie Owen, Rem, um, uh, Mide and Che. Now, every single one of them are capable of playing in the championship. You have to try and win the game. It's a different, it's a different measure of what you're doing. Now, you're not only at the technical level, you're now at the psychological level, that game states, understanding about if you was playing in the first team and you were winning 2-0, do you run and get the ball quickly? No. Do right. What do we do? The other team are popping us. Do we drop? Do we hold? But that 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 that, that cohort of players are a different 
in a different level to the people that you're trying to actually teach the game. So, so if you think about it, I spoke I, last night, there was a really good podcast with someone that you'd know, Michael Bill. Um, and he was talking about, you know, was I really a good coach at Chelsea? We used to win all the time. And he's, he's now recognised that that doesn't necessarily mean that, that you're a great coach because you've got the best players and you win all the time. And I thought it was a really good point, the way that, how he was honest about it. And, and also, they had very good players, which he, he outlined. And he said, they, we had really good players who didn't make it. They didn't make it because there was no pathway. So did they win? No, they didn't win. But they were still doing the right things. We were still doing the right things, but with no pathway. And, you know, sometimes you have coaches who, um, sometimes I stand on the side and because people know I've done first team football, I become the scout. I become the scout because they think, oh, that Chris Ramsey, he was his first team manager and we just beat them 6-0. And then, then we look at the end of the season and we say, well, how many players have you had playing in your team? None. So to me, who's, who's actually won that game? Is it me or is it them? Well, not me. Is it us or is it, is it them? Well, it's us because you're, 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 when it boils down to it, even your job, if you look at your job and, I, and someone says, oh, well, he's, 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 he's got no power running forward, you're accountable. You're accountable. So, so if all of a sudden he is, but he crosses it over the bar, now I'm accountable. Do you know what I mean? Because you've done your bit of it, you've done your share of it. I haven't done my share of it because he can't he can't cross it properly. Do, do you see what do you see what I mean? Yeah. So winning is depending on what you on what we expect the outcome to be of developing that player. And that's slightly different to the team thing, where majority of people don't make it, do they? Yeah. So at what point then, Chris, do you think it starts to turn in that development expertise stage where you have to prepare for the next stage? Yeah, round about then, definitely. I think you can start bringing it. I think you need to bring it in anyway, because I think I, one of the things is that, that, that there's a couple of things that are, are really, I think I'm a bit misunderstood at times. Winning is important, but it depends what you've got in, to win with. So it depends where you place the winning, where you place the winning. It's almost like, uh, say for I'm say we talk about playing out from the back tactically, right? People think playing out from the back for me is passing it to the fullbacks or passing it to the centre halves. No, playing out for me is can you score? How quick can you score? So the centre forward's through. That's the furthest comfortable pass. Play it to him, and if you've done that ten times and we won ten nil, I would I'd be happy, right? Now. We know that that's not going to happen. So the next comfortable pass is into midfield. We know that that's not going to be comfortable. So that's why we play to centre halves. People think it's the other way around. Yeah. It's not the other way around. Score as quick as you can. And so it's it's all these myths about why like, we play out from the back and we do this. No, we we try and do is try and score. And we in that time of trying to score, we try and develop the players within their jobs. Perfect. I think, Chris, just for the listeners, I think that we, we know what these terms are, but in terms of when you say Z, ZPD, what do they mean, and ILPs, and 
you know, bringing skills and uh, back to the lab. So just, just what, what, what do you mean by those terms? All right, the Z, ZPD is, is, is a thing for uh, a theory called Vazoski. And, and basically, all these theorists and that just say things are almost common sense, really. You know, because a lot of, lot of that stuff is the science of common sense. But what it is, is just training people where they're, where, from where they're at. And what can, what, what can you add to what they, they're already doing? Where do you bring them to? So if somebody can, uh, for argument's sake, clip the ball down the line, so you don't really have to coach them into running up and bending their knee and clipping the ball. But you might have to, you might have to give them a little bit of how they put backspin on it. Or if they're driving it, do they kick through? Or if they want to keep it on the floor, do they get their head over the ball? Just technical points, but from where they're from where they where where they're at. So if I'm teaching, I don't know, it's just trying to teach people from where they're at to save time. So all the latent learning will happen in what they know already, because they'll practice what they know. They'll they'll do what they know automatically all the time. So. Um, getting someone to time their runners on an overlap they might be doing that all the time you don't need to coach that you might need to refine it but you don't need to coach it so their zpd with their zone of proximal development will start at the cross how do you make that better so how do you actually make, make, make them doing it so you've put the session on you don't coach the bits in between if they're doing it all right because they'll be practicing that all the time and, it, and, it, and it'll be fine so it's just coaching from where they're at and trying to make sure that that you maximize your time in coaching them and realize realize where they're at as far as the individual learning plans are i mean that's broken down as ilps um and taking things back to the lab is taking back the cross starts the, is where the lab starts at so the zpd that's the lab that's the bit that you need to fix along the continuum of learning so you look at the you look at the bit that you need to fix and that's the bit that you take to the lab and you isolate that. So for argument's sake, if somebody is overlapping well and timing their run well, but they're getting there and they're, 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 they're mistiming the cross because they're running too fast or something like that, you might, you might take away the bit that they know already and you might only work on the contact on the ball. You might say, well, I'm going to roll this three yards just, and you might, say, you might ask them about where they put their, their arms, you know, the ball fill, you know, all that, all that, all that sort of thing. You give them information at that point. So you just a small, isolated bit of training is the lab for us. And then your your philosophy is based around, and the club philosophy is based around a strength based program. So what what do you mean? Yeah. By that? Well, strength based program is most of the time you sign people for things they can do. Most of the time, release them for the same thing. They can't do this and they can't do that. So. If you are David Beckham, is it worth you being good on your left foot? Not really, because you're world class at your good foot. So you can you can be the, the one of the best players in the world being good at, at what you're good at. So although um, we do realise that there are things that you might not be good at that might stop you from progressing, that's when we would probably look at addressing something like that. So if you're a centre-half, uh, going back to that, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm picking the centre-halves because it's an easy one for people to see. And you can, you can uh, stop the turn, 
you're good at in behind you. You can track your runner. You can step into midfield. You can play, but you can't head it. That is something that's going to stop you progressing because you can't you can't do the fundamental part of your job. So, but if you are if you are um, if you're a winger and you're not very good at defending the far post, that might be important for some managers, but that's not going to stop you getting a career. So we're not with that. It's not going to impact on you getting a career because you can run people, you can cross it. You're good at good at most things, but you're not good at that. So we're not going to work on that, even though it might be part of your job at some stage. We're not working on that unless you get to a point where they're saying, right, if he's not good at that, he's not going to play. So now you're going to have to work on that. It's going to impact on your career. It's going to impact on what on what people want. So if you think about it, what do we do? Most of the times we don't let the wingers track, do we? So the wingers don't track because we want to leave 1v1s with the fullback. So not only that, we want the wingers then as we get older to understand when to track and when not to track. So if you look at rotation, rotational play, why do people actually get away with it? Because people just run, run with them. They don't think. So somebody comes in, somebody spins, they just go with them. So it allows someone else to come in. So if you're a lot of the times with, uh, you know, now, uh, not now, but fullbacks go high, the wide men go with them when there's no need. But we need them to understand why do you go with them? What's the point? Are they running? If, if, it's, if, if, if uh, the fullback's on his own, is the other fullback that's, that's, that's uh, attacking him, is he running into a cul-de-sac because we've got the midfield over there? Therefore, why does our winger need to track back? So you need people to think. You need, you need, you need thinkers. You need people to say, well, I don't need to track back now because he's running into four players. What happens is people will just run with him or run, run with her. Just change, change in tune a little bit. You, you said previously a very enjoyable phase of your career was working with Tim Sherwood and Les Ferdinand and where you're with the uh, EDS or the under 23s, under 21s, whatever mm. age group you want to call it. And you helped bring through the likes of, you know, real, some world superstars like Harry Kane and then, you know, uh, Ryan Mason, Tom Carroll and some other players like that. And obviously then you stepped into the first team coach with Tottenham when the first team manager uh, uh, left the club. Can you tell us a little bit about that period and, and how you found that? Well, as I said before, we had uh, the likes of um, myself and John to put the philosophy into place. And then we brought Eric, uh, Perry Sutcliffe was a massive, massive influence because without the goalkeepers, you can't play it. And obviously, uh, Richard Allen started to recruit players that we, that, you know, like Stephen Corker and people like that, 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 that were real assets to, to the club. So we'd already had a good background of that the players had a solid technical background. Um, but what happened then was obviously I went with, 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 with uh, from being with the under 16s and the under 17s and that to working with, with the development squad. Now, one of the good things about it was at that time we pulled them out of the, out of the reserve league because we didn't think the Reserve League was offering us what we wanted. Um, and my, our first development team, you know, we, we was Carl Walker, Stephen Corker, uh, a guy called Bongani, the South African man, uh, was, was captain in the World Cup. 
Uh, Carl Norton, Danny Rose was a winger in them days. Um, Ryan Mason, Jake Livermore, Andros Townsend. And then up front was John Abika, John Bostock, Subs, Harry Kane, Adam Smith, you know, who's at Bournemouth now, uh, Tom Carroll, Massimo, um, and a guy called Mpoku who plays for Stanley Liege. That was, that was the subs. So that's, that's not a bad little cohort of players there. But so we pulled them out, out of the league and we played, um, we just played non-league teams or we played teams from lower divisions, their first teams. Um, and we played in, in a competition called the Next Gen. So it was an under-20s tournament, uh, which Mark, Mark Wolverton actually organised. So we had a massive array of games, uh, of experiences for the players, from playing international football to playing um, against people's first teams. And also, uh, one of the things that Mike, Michael Bill said last night, you do need people that there to fight for the players. And Tim and Les had a massive personalities at the club, so they could fight to get the players into the, into the team, mainly in the Europa Cup. But, you know, imagine if you're... Uh, you know, you played uh, Ryan Fredericks, um, Andros, Harry Kane, people like that, playing against Polk, you know, away there at, you know, 1920. You know, there's massive learning experiences for, for, for those people. And one of the things which is really important to, to, uh, to, to, to outline is that when producing players, there's a lot of faceless wonders, faceless con con contributors. So, although we appeared to produce the players, we had to have disciples. Because if you haven't got the disciples, you are not going to do it. It's very, very difficult to, 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 to do it. So, uh, we, we, we uh, you know, reap the benefits of a lot of stuff that are done before. But one of the things that Tim and Les were fantastic at doing was putting the icing on the cake for the players, the bit that actually gets you in the team. They were they were very good at that. Their experience and what they did, and the things that they that, that they taught the players, helped to get them to that next that that next level. So it's a continual uh, team effort over loads of people, from 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 the the, the under elevens coach, all 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 the way all the way through. Because without that that foundation, we they wouldn't have been able to bring them to the next level. I mean, I mean, some of the some some, some of the, the the players, you know. I mean, believe it or not, Sandro, Sandro, who used to play for us, he was only twenty one then. He used to play, you know, in the teams in in the in the team, you know. And um, when you're looking at that, and you're thinking to yourself, we were fortunate that we had that because we bought three of them players. Danny Rose got, was bought, uh, Carl Walker and Carl Norton, they were bought. And between them, they must have been seven million. Imagine how much they're worth now. Yeah, you know, it's unbelievable. And when you came to QPR, then and initially in in charge of the academy, and then uh, you stepped up to being first team manager in QPR in the Premier League. And I suppose you you tried to bring that kind of ethos into that team and into the club as well of playing the young players and I remember like Darnell Furlong and Greg O'Cox you get those guys their debuts in big important games you know against Arsenal and, and other teams did, did that I mean 
can that work in a club like QPR or did you need to have more time to kind of bed that into the, the, the system and the philosophy of the club? I, I think it can work at QPR because, and it can work in all clubs because was it their fault that we lost the games? No. Yeah. No. You look at the goals, there's experienced players on 40, 50 grand a week. So a lot of the times you have to look at the outcome and, and I think it's easy when people uh, stand back and say, oh, well, if I was in charge, I'd do this and I'd do that. Well, you just got to do it if you get in charge. The last team that we had at, uh, at Tottenham, uh, we played Aston Villa. Had we, The game ended with seven academy players on the pitch and we won 3-0. And they, and they had to try and win the game. It wasn't one of them where it was... Just, it was a game that no one... So what I'm, what I'm say, saying is, as long as you believe in the players, you have to believe in the players. You can't just throw them in if you don't think they're very good just because you want to prove a point. No, you can't do that. So at the time that I was, I, you know, I, took, I took over, I was confident that Darnell physically would give me what I needed. His game understanding may not lend itself straight away to that level of football in the Premier League. He didn't let himself down in any game. Um... And it's about out, it's about outcome. It's about outcome. And a lot of the times, the players that you think are going to help you because they're experienced don't. So um, people always talk about this player is 19, he's young. This I'll, I'll give you an example. We played uh, Crystal Palace, and I played I played uh, Darnell, and he played against Balassi. Balassi was on fire at the time, right? And he murdered him. Right, so now I'm a now I'm a naive, inexperienced coach. That's what they're saying. The next week they played another Premier League team with a fullback that cost fifteen million. He murdered him. So <laughs> does that make that 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 Premier League manager naive, and 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 whatever, because he he's playing a season pro who's got caps, and he's playing him and and he's murdered him. So it just depends on what people think about why people fail. Is it they fail because of because they're young, or if they fail because they're not good players, or if they do they fail because they just had a bad game? Because I'll tell you something now. If you look at the youngsters that have played in our since we've been here, since we've been doing this, we've had eighteen debuts, probably something like that. And you look at the you look at the players that have played. Very few of them. Uh, where they've caused that, they've caused the first team to lose. Very, very few situations where they've called they've they've caused them to lose. So I think people people don't don't look at things in a proper manner. I think it's easy to play the, the experienced players because if you lose, no one can point the finger. It's one less thing to point the finger. That 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 that, that that's what I think. And I think now clubs are going to have to going to have to think about playing youngsters uh, or not youngsters developing their own that's what I mean developing their own so if we had a, a player cap like the Premier League does 25 players you, you, you'd have no choice you know at the moment the championship and all the other teams haven't got that if we was to say right there's got to be 25 players in your squad of which three have to come from your academy have to have been at your club at least two years in your academy right everybody else is a is a is a free hit. They could they could be someone who's been there a month if they were like a scholar or something like that. But what they can't what they can't be is um, 
somebody that you bring in from another academy to 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 be there. So that would force the pathway. It would force it. Any manager coming in then would have to say, well, you know what? Uh, I'm taking the job knowing that the under 23s have got these eight players that we think are good players. Um, and we have to work with them. We have to work with them. You, you think, does coaching and learning of players finish when they make it in the first team? Yeah, too often. Too often. I, I, I've, this, this uh, I mean, believe it or not, people think that I'm widely associated with uh, youth football. But out of my 20-odd years of, of, of coaching, 10 years of it, well, 20, 25, 30, whatever it is of you, 10 years I've done first-team football, 10 years. So I realised that first-team players think that they've made it. Most of, the, most of the mistakes they do are technical that can be rectified by, by persistent training. Um, and, I, and, and I don't understand why, because all the top teams still train. They still do. They still train properly. The, it's only, it's only the, the people in the middle that think that they need to turn up and just get their money. It's interesting. I've been watching the Manchester City uh, documentary on Amazon Prime. Mm. And like the, probably the best coach in, in the world, Pep Guardiola, and he certainly coaches and teaches on a daily basis, those superstar players. Mm. But we don't, but 100%, and that's why they're the best. Because although they're good, he's making what they're good at better. Whereas we don't think we need to do that. We think, oh, I'll do a bit of shooting, oh, miss 10 shots and then go in. It, 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 it's not. And I think that's the thing. That's a cultural thing in this country. And we've got to, we, I think, I still think we've got among the best coaches in the world in this country. But I, th I don't think, I don't think the culture allows people to coach to the levels that that they can express themselves. Did you enjoy managing in the Premier League, in the Championship? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you know, no, I didn't, I didn't really, being a first team manager is, is not the peaches and cream that everybody thinks it is. It's hard and it's horrible because you can't sleep. And the problem about being a Premier League manager, there's only 18 of you or 20 of you. So every, I don't want to be famous. I don't really, that's, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like the fame of it. That's the only thing. I don't, all the other stuff, I don't mind. Uh, the games, the games are difficult because believe it or not, when you, well, you've been a manager. <laughs> yeah. The games last, the games last about two days. That's what it feels like. <laughs> Minimum. <laughs> the games are, the games are, are 90 minutes. You can never realise how long that can feel. You know what I mean? You can never, you can never realise how long that can feel. And then, and, and then the other part about being a manager is if you're winning one nil with like eight minutes to go, so you can see the win and you can see the loss. You know, so it, it's stre it's, stre it's stressful. Of course, if I had an opportunity to have a job that I thought was was worthwhile, I'd do it again because I wouldn't want to be on my deathbed and think, "Oh, you coward! Why didn't you do it again?" But if someone said to me tomorrow, uh, you're going to end your career uh, in seven or eight years' time, which is probably the truth, um, but you can just do this job that you're doing now, mm. I would do it. I would take that over being a manager. Yeah. 
we, we had Bernard Jackman on last week. He's been a coach in rugby for the Dragons in Wales and Grenoble in, in France. And he said that doing a bit of media work now, he, he had, he'd been sacked from, from Dragons and doing a bit of media work now and he was doing work on a game. And the game finished and then he could enjoy having a few drinks, having a meal, relax and go home, spend time with his family. And it's a completely different experience than when you're involved. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, as you know, um, you don't. One of the things I would have done more is I'd have enjoyed, even though there weren't many, I'd have enjoyed me wins more. Because what you're doing is you're, you're as soon as you, as soon as you, the game's over, you're preparing for the next game. Mm. And and I and I think, what can you actually do an hour after the game for the next game? Why not enjoy a meal? and that with your family, what's the difference going to be? And I think I'd have enjoyed whatever wins we had more. Um, but you know what? If you think about football in the community in uh, 1992 to, uh, you know, the Emirates and uh, Loftus Road, you know, in 2015, you, it's an incredible, incredible journey, you know? No badge, no nothing. Starting that, starting that. The ninety ninety four, sorry, ninety ninety four. Starting off, no badge. Football in the community, and then someone would say to you, twenty years later, you're going to be the manager. You would have laughed. Yeah, I'm sure. You like you and your family would have been very proud of going on that journey, like starting from the very bottom in the community and then being manager in the Premier League. Yeah, and and. At the moment, being part of the first team, you know, because obviously that's I've been doing that role for the last two and a half years, two, two, yeah, two and a half years. That's been it's the best role ever. I've got the best job in the country. Um, I, 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 I would take, I would finish my career doing this job. Um, so you're getting your first team kick, so you're having a heart attack once a week, and then, uh, and then you get your development kick. Which is when you're seeing players evolve, and, and you 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 dreaming of a player. You're trying to you you're looking at a player. Uh, you know when we had uh, you know even Faisal when he played his ten minutes the other day. You know when you know when you think about how difficult it was to sign him on, on a contract. We had no money, and then then he plays in the team. You know that that for us as as a club, as as a, is just fan, fantastic. It's probably more enjoyable than actually. The first team stuff, if you know what I mean. Yeah. 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 Just the last thing then before I pass you over to Ross and Ross going to chat about the sports science kind of integration in the club and in the setup. I'm sure that there'd be a lot of the Irish listeners interested in this. The England DNA, it's not going to work, is it? You're not going to go and win the World Cup on us and, and, and have that and have the Irish listening to the English celebrating that for the rest of our lifetime. Listen, as far as I as far as as I know, well, I grew up in in Holloway, which is a massive Irish fraternity there. Uh, whatever, whether we win it or not, I'm sure they're going to be enjoying some drinks because <laughs> I grew up next door to an Irish pub. So, uh, as far as I, I've seen in the Irish community, they enjoy themselves 
regardless uh, <laughs> who wins it. <laughs> that is true, that's for, for sure. Ross? Chris, just a couple from me. I know we've been chatting for a while and we could go on all day. We're picking your brain. Um, obviously, the sport, there'll be some listeners that are from a sports science background and similar positions to me and or trying to get into the industry. What advice do you have for someone who's managing a sports scientist or performance SSC coach coming into the game? I think one of the things is what we do well. Um, I mean, like you two, you're both coaches, uh, coaches, and you're both learning the game from the essence of the game by doing your badges and being involved in the coaching to understand the nuances of of what it takes to be a footballer. I think there's too many generic sports scientists in the game, and I think we can listen. We can take sports science and you can manipulate it to whatever you want if you know the theory of it. But I think if you've got some context in what you're actually doing, I think it really does help you to, to be a better sports scientist. And I would always employ someone who's more, if I thought that they knew the game, I'd employ them more than I thought someone who was, who was a better sports scientist. Because I think, you know, we've worked on things with players, haven't you? You've worked on things where you've improved players, parts of their game, physically that's helped them technically and has helped them to get through the game um if you don't understand what they need to actually do you're just giving them a, a, a generic uh what one one size fits all program I, I don't i don't think that that's right so um managing sports scientists i would say try to get them to understand the philosophy of what you're trying to do try to get them to understand um the positional requirements of each player. So we're not saying that they've got to actually be able to take the team, but the positional requirements for a player are important. So when we, when um, I worked with the FA and we did uh, myself, um, Richard, Richard Hawkins, uh, Mark Hulse, um, Craig Simmons, we, 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 we were involved in writing the, the, the fitness badge. One of the things where my value became um, a little bit more to the front than than obviously their high level of, of knowledge of sports science is understanding the formations and what was needed uh, physically in the formation. So are you going to high press? What type of training do you need to do? If you're going to if if you're playing with a, with a ten, what does that ten need? Uh, what's his physical requirements? What's his characteristics? Is he one that runs in behind or is he one that goes side to side? What we get, what can we get him to do? So if you might say, I might say to you, look, I need that 10 running in behind all the time. You might say he probably hasn't got the physical capabilities to do that. So we might have to look at a different way of developing him to become effective, to get him to the next level. So understanding, you understanding that shortcuts my level of why. It shortcuts it. So we know there's generic fitness that people have to have. But I think understanding the player and understanding what's required of them um, is very important for for for, for uh, sports science. That's a really good answer, and I think it comes from being open, isn't it? To learning from coaches, and you know, not just thinking that this, like you say, one program will will develop everything for everyone. Um, the next one, Chris, might go on to uh, controversy, I guess. Um, 
tell me a little bit, and I know we discuss regular about this, but tell me a little bit around your thoughts around psychology and how that can come into the program and, and not just the academy, but maybe the, the first team level and your thoughts on that as well. Uh, I, I, I brought the psych, psychology into our club and I, and I do believe in it. And I do believe that everything you do is on the back, all coaching is on the backdrop of connection. And you can, can, if you can connect and understand and empathise with players, you can you can manipulate their technical program for them to be good players. You can do that. However, I I believe that there's you know in in sport there's a lot of people that live off off uh, football. They come into it, they promise a lot of stuff, and, and because a lot of people are not educated academically educated in that fashion. They tend to be overwhelmed by what people are saying. So, so for me, in order for sports um, psychologists to be effective, I believe that they they have they too have to understand what you're trying to do, because without doing that, it's still a generic program. It's still a generic. We we all know uh, pastoral care. We understand that, but we're talking about how do I get that person to for argument's sake, if someone's going into a tackle after they've had an injury, how do I know whether they're going into that tackle, they're pulling out of the tackle, or they're being late to the tackle? I don't know if, unless I know the game. So if they seem to be doing it, I might be letting that player down by giving him the feedback that's not right. So different things like uh, resilience. How do we get people to, be, to, to tap into their, their own resilience? I don't think you can give people more than what they've got. I think you can just you can get what they've got in them. So you can't make someone resilient who's not resilient. You can help them to be more resilient, but you can't make them resilient because that's not in their personality. Otherwise, everyone would be perfect, wouldn't they? Yeah. So basically, it's about how do we tap into 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 uh, people's. Um, psyche so that they can maximize what they're going to do within the context of what they're do of what they're doing so for argument's sake if you look at this we all talk about positive thinking so i can say to you right oh the gym's just back open up uh, we haven't trained for two months but i, I used to lift 100 kilos i'm just going to go in there i'm going to think positively and just lift it I, 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 that's not gonna that, that's not gonna i'm gonna be injured now if, if somebody understands, look, in order for you to do that, these, this is what you need to develop first. Is your technique right? Have you put some local uh, 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 um, muscular endurance or power into your legs? Have you done this? Have you, do you understand what I mean? Have you now lifted 20 kilos before you started it and then two, a little bit later, moved up progressively? But you're thinking positively and just saying, no, positive thinking I'm going to go and lift 100 kilos that ain't going to happen so if somebody knows what the process is they can be a better psychologist for you yeah I guess all support staff it comes down to understanding the game more doesn't it understanding the individual positions to players and working under the philosophy that you've set from the top um, that's the overarching branch isn't it well that's it and the philosophy you know it's like we, we, for us, it's like meze, isn't it? Our philosophy. There's so many, there's so many factors that we talk about that if you're not one of us, like one, one of the clan, <laughs> it, it's 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 
it's a difficult one for people to, because obviously you've got jargon in football, but we all know the jargon, what, what it is and how it is and this and that and the other. So coming into working, working with us is easy because I think we're quite accommodating, but there's so many different factions to it, but it all links. Every single, every single bit of it links. So we're not ever, no one's ever working in isolation. If you're working on something, I know where that player is going to get the benefit of it. You know what I mean? If the psychologist is working on something, we should know where that's going to, where the benefit of, of, of that's, going, that's going to be. And, and obviously with, with, the, with the technical side, de definitely. Because as much as we think the kids come in, they come in for a period of time. So uh, eight or nine months. You waste two or three months. Not only are they catching up, they still got to learn what they need to learn. So when you're a pro, I wouldn't say you're finished, but you're, you've already got muscle memory. You've already got mental memory of what to do. And, and, and all people have to do is get you back into shape. These people are still devising their, their, their brain memory and their, their muscle memory of, of, of what to do. They're still devising um, um, what to do next. They're still devising it. So it's very difficult to say, to, to say well, um, we're going to do one thing and then that's, that's it. We have to have, a, we have, to have a, a, a complete holistic approach to, to, what, to what we're doing. But the, 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 the biggest thing, that I, the, um, even though we do have a holistic approach, if they fail technically, they're going to fail. It doesn't matter. They could be strong. They could be mentally strong. They could be the best fed. They could have the lowest body fat. If they can't control and pass the ball, they're going to fail. <laughs> they're going to fail. Everything else we can, everything else we can, we can help. We can help someone's body fat. You know, we 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 can we can help someone to to, to eat better. But if he can't play, he can't play. And, that, and that's the bottom line, isn't it? Again, as a team, kids. I think you're going to finish off a yeah, few. Yeah, no, it's it's a really good point to finish with, and and. We've taken so much of your time, Chris. One final, okay, question, one final question. What, what would you tell a 21-year-old Chris Ramsey now? Listen, I, I was the worst. I would, I, would, I, would, I would, if I had to manage me, I'd have beat me up. I'd have been <laughs> doing time. <laughs> I, that's why, that's why I, I'm, I'm so on the players. Because, you know, I was, I was in the squad, England under 21 squad, then I got injured. Uh, from there, within 18 months, I was playing in, in League Two. You know what I mean? From, you know, obviously, it's different now because if, if your mum dies, they're putting people put their arm around you and they'll help you and stuff like that. In those days, you just went on a bender for two years. Yeah. You know, and then because you, if your worst thing that can happen to you is to be doing the wrong thing and then win Player of the Year, the worst thing that can happen. Because you just then believe, first of all, if you're genetically gifted, you think that's going to last forever. And secondly, it reaffirms that you doing the wrong thing is the right thing. Yeah. So what I would say to players now is slightly different in this career now, because, it, because if you look at it then, 21 at Brighton, contract was ended the season before, you're probably going to be financially set in these days and probably three or four years, you probably won't have to play again. But the players nowadays don't realise how quickly you're out of the game. 
most players are out of the game within 10 years. And that's from 16 to 24. So, so most players are out of the game and most players don't earn a lot of money. They don't earn life-changing money. So I would just say, whatever you do, you've just got to make sure that you know how to please the people that pick the team. Simple. Sim- 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 simple as that. And, and you've got such a short period and this competition is so big. If you slip up, you're now not doing a job you don't want to do. You know, when I was uh, when I was uh, 16, when I should have been studying for my exams, I, I, I got a job in a greengrocer's, and uh, I realised that I didn't ever want to do that again for that for those five six weeks. And so, in them days when I had that mental dedication to to try hard and work hard and all that, but you lose it some along the way. You lose it by listening to your peer group. You lose it by looking at what other people have got. You lose, you lose it. You know, Les always says to says says to the, to, to to a lot of the young players. He says, you know, when people say, "Oh, if I wasn't a footballer, I'd be in a gang. I would be," oh, you know, why would you be in a gang? It's not a prerequisite. It's not a prerequisite to be in a gang if you're not a footballer, <laughs> is it? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Why can't you be something else in your life that's just as important to, to you? You know, why can't you go and, you know, be a sports scientist or be a psychologist or I don't know, do being a work in a bank, you know, something that 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 means that that you're working and, and uh, paying your taxes and doing things properly. So it's about people staying focused in what's important to what's important to them. And being a footballer isn't isn't for everybody. Yeah, yeah, and you you always say to us to make sure look after your family and spend time, and you know you don't get that time back. And we give so much to the game, but you've you've got to remember your personal life. Well, you don't you don't get the school, you know, like you know you don't get the uh, you don't get the school playback ever, no matter what you do. If you miss that, you're late ten minutes for that. You will never get that moment back. So, all you people with kids. Make sure that, that that you balance life. Life balance um, is 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 so so important. Um, and I've noticed that in in football, as much as I've had a great time, I would give up some things for that balance of uh, seeing my seeing my kid doing the uh, hundred meters at, at seven years old. Well, that would be child abuse, wouldn't it? Twenty meters. <laughs> Twenty meters. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Look, thank, thank you very much. We've taken up so much of your time and, and for Absolutely coming on. Absolutely, no problem. You've no, been brilliant. No and, and also, it has to be said, over helping our career, both myself and Ross's over, over the last few years has been brilliant and we're, we're very thankful. Ross wouldn't, be, wouldn't have a job, uh, probably. He wouldn't be in the industry. <laughs> What's that, Ross? No, at least he, he knows the game, which, is, which helps. Yeah, I'm, I'm forever grateful. Thank you very much for coming on, Chris. You've been no, I'm grateful. fantastic. Thank you. Any time, just let me know if you need me. I'll speak to you soon. Okay. Too. Cheers, you. mate. Thank you very much.